Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, PJ Nyman will be joining Jasmine to speak about their anti-oppression work within animal advocacy on Mercy for Animals corporate engagement team and on the board of Encompass, as well as how their own personal identity within the LGBTQ community has informed the way they approach animal rights. You loved this conversation, didn't you? So much. And so did everyone else at our hen house because we have like this uh, sort of series of listening to the episodes before they are finally edited. And everyone on Slack at our hen house was like just talking about how much they enjoyed this interview. Also, PJ's in Toronto. And now that we live in Rochester, I was like, you're so close. And I like somewhat inappropriately slash awkwardly Google mapped their address to my address while we were on the Zoom call. Weird. Totally weird. They're like, okay, so we're on this side of Lake Ontario. And I swear, if I got in a canoe and went right across, they are on the other side. Unfortunately, you have to go around. So it's a little longer. But anyway. There used to be a ferry years ago. I know. A fast ferry. Maybe they'll get it back. I literally Googled that the other day. Will that come back? There's no signals that it might, but maybe we can start a change.org. Oh, this was funny. In an article I was reading about whether the ferry would come back. It was talking about how when the Rochester to Toronto ferry started, all of the Rochester news was there and everyone was so excited and absolutely nobody from the Toronto news showed up. (laughs) I thought it was very funny. Anyway. Toronto's kind of like more of a big city than Rochester. It's true. Okay, I know. Anyway, so on this week's Flock bonus segment, I do continue that enlightening conversation with PJ. And I I cannot recommend enough that if you're in the Flock, you tune into the bonus segments because usually people are all like kind of loosey-goosey and ready to just sort of jump into like the, the personal questions that we probe them with for the bonus content. So if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, that's 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And, you know, we always have like inspiring guests on and I do really, really enjoy those conversations. Talk about activism, talk about life, talk about food, whatever. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine. I will look forward to seeing you there. If you're interested in that and you're in the flock, email Jen at Jen at ourhenhouse.org and she will set up a time with you. So before we get to our interview with PJ, I was chuckling to myself when I looked at the uh, ideas for what we could chat about today. Because we always just for our listeners, we always start with a list of ideas and then we have a discussion about what we want to talk about and what we don't. And you wrote KFC debate. Only you put debate in quotes, and that made me laugh. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I think I'm laughing because the debate, it's just, it's going to be difficult to have this conversation, to be honest, because I don't understand the debate part. Like, I don't I just understand the so debate obvious. either. I'm talking about debate on social media, which, you know, I don't, like, maybe I should just get off social media and that would resolve this. But of course, you all know, I am sure, that KFC came out with their Beyond Meat, quote unquote, chicken 
this past week. And apparently, I have not tried it. Apparently, it is just really, really good. And lots of people are trying it. And if you're on social media, uh, you no doubt know that there are a lot of vegans who are completely horrified by this. It's so confusing. And I really, really try to approach these things with generosity and trying to understand the other side. And I just don't understand how this is a bad thing. I can't get it through my head. One of the things is, well, it's cooked in the same oil that their chicken is cooked. And I can totally understand if that grosses somebody out. And as a result, they don't want to eat it. And in which case, I think they shouldn't eat it. And I can totally understand how it doesn't gross other people out that, you know, it's it's really what they object to is paying for chickens to be killed. And if if no chickens are actually killed, they don't they don't mind like the idea that they have consumed some, uh, you know, kind of essence of animal product, because, you know, we probably do that pretty regularly. I see both points of view and I totally I just don't get why that would be an ethical issue. I can't figure it out. I I did see somebody post, I won't list any names, but how this meant that it wasn't vegan and anybody who called it vegan was simply wrong. And, you know, again, we're, we're having etymological debates about the meaning of a word, which is not clearly defined. It's a word that is in cultural flux and none of us own it. So uh, a lot of people want to own that word, but, you know, that's just not how words work. It's just not, I can't help it. So if you want to consider it not vegan and you want to consider people who do, who eat it not vegan, well, that's your prerogative too. You know, you, we can all kind of have our own definitions. Vegan, I just, I, I just don't get it. Do you? Oh, please. <laughs> no. I mean, I get it in the sense that people are persnickety and people like to come up with reasons to be on their high horse, which admittedly somebody might call me uh, right now on mine. But I don't understand why every vegan in the world doesn't think that this is a wonderful thing because veganism isn't about us. It's not about vegans. It's about the animals. It's not about like whether or not we're going to be totally purists. It's about whether there is a vegan option available at this unbelievably successful chain of fast food restaurants that is literally everywhere. Do you know that a couple that when I was senior editor at Veg News and we used to do these April Fool's Day stories and we would I know that you hated those April Fool's Day stories. They're so bad. Like I have fallen for them several times. They're like not that outlandish. Okay, but that aside, there was this one year where we were like, what is the most ridiculous possible thing that we could possibly write? And it was that KFC debuts vegan chicken. Yeah. Yeah. I think I fell for it that year. And so now this is really kind of like, you know, old news for me because I believed <laughs> it then. No, I don't get it. In fact, I lost a friendship over this once. I I, I, I am. Uh, I don't know if I'm embarrassed about that or if I'm proud of that or what. But I was with some friends when I lived in L.A. and we were at Nick's on Beverly, which is this very fancy, you know, vegan place, very kind of all the people in the in the industry go there all the the cool people kind of go there we got like a, a outdoor garden seat and we were being served fancy wine and our glasses and beyond burger just came out at burger king and i was like isn't it amazing you know just thinking that like everyone's gonna agree with me because i was with these two vegans and they looked at each other like i was on mars or i was 
just completely bananas. And they were like, no, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's on the same grill. Get it. And I was like, I think that I had had a little too much of that fancy wine. And also the opulence around me, the privilege around me. And so all these people with their fancy. Calm down, calm down. Okay. The people with their fancy wine glasses in the garden of this restaurant talking about how no Burger King should not have these Beyond Burgers. I said to them, I was like, you know, it's not for us necessarily, except for, of course, I had like stopped at Burger King on my way home and got some because I ate it, you know, like. I, I would eat the KFC one if it was in front of me and I was hungry. Like you actually, before we started recording this, you kept saying like, now I want it. Now I want it. Now I, I have to go get it. I wanted to add one thing because I didn't, cu- you know, and there might be other reasons too. I, it's not like I have read every social media post on this, but the other thing is, is that people say, well, KFC is horrible, is a horrible company and they are responsible for the murder and, and torture of untold numbers of chickens. And that is certainly true. If your your goal is to like never patronize any company that is responsible for animal abuse, I say more power to you, you know, like good for you. But, you know, unless that's consistent, that doesn't seem like a reason to castigate people who choose to go to, uh, well, maybe it is a reason. I don't know. Choose to go to companies that like actually run the world and control enormous, enormous amounts of food and support their non-torturing chicken alternatives. I don't know. You know, like the world is a corrupt and horrible place. We make the best choices we can. Uh, it just... I wish I got it. It's like, it's kind of like anti-vaxxers. It's like, I, 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 I want to understand, but I just never do. And I don't want to be intolerant and I don't want to be on my high horse. And, but, but I, I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Obviously I agree that KFC has been like hideous. So like billions and billions of animals. And what's bothersome, I guess, is that like certain vegans will say that as if we don't know that. Like, I think that's part of what's so frustrating. Like, yeah, we do know that that's true. We live in a meat-eating world still. And anyway, I I don't know. I was listening to this podcast, the 80,000 Hours podcast, and it made me think about how important this kind of thing is. Because I was listening on to this interview with Andrew Yang, you know, the guy who ran for president. And it was a very broad-ranging interview. But, you know, it's an effective altruism podcast. And kudos to them. One of the first questions that was asked was was what he would do about, or like his feelings about and his attitudes regarding factory farming and the hor- horrific abuse of so many animals, and and uh, which I was impressed with. That was a very early on question. You know, and he just basically agreed that this was a huge problem that had to be addressed. And he kind of mentioned as an aside Whenever I have the choice, I mean, they talked about how important it was that there were alternatives coming on and, you know, the huge markets in in alternatives. And he said, whenever I have the choice, I choose the alternative. And I thought, I wonder if that's really true. I don't know. But, you know, it's probably true to some extent. It may not be whenever. I don't understand why you would then not seek out a place that had the alternative. It's such a passive kind of way to think about that, but I bet it's really, really common. And it means that having those alternatives on the plate, it just changes, it changes the possibilities. It also changes the conversation. 
It doesn't become something impossible ha, 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 or um, ridiculous or beyond our imagination. <laughs> it just becomes something that people get to choose. And if they are made to understand that the choice is between animal abuse and not animal abuse, then then they have a reason to choose and they look bad if they make the wrong choice. I don't know what incentivizes people to eat meat or not eat meat. I agonize over it all the time. I can never figure out. But I thought that was a really interesting comment. And I thought there was a lot to unpack within it. Whenever I have the choice, I choose the alternative. Well, I mean, he always has the choice, but okay, I'll stop. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't understand what, what that really means, but it means something. I actually think that would be so much harder. I mean, obviously, from an ethical perspective, I would not ever consume an animal product or byproduct. But I feel like if you are on that sort of ethical spectrum of like not wanting to partake in the hideous system that is factory farming, that is animal agriculture, I think it would be a lot harder to like have that, you know, flexitarian attitude. I totally agree. I know some people do and that for some people, especially on their way to full on veganism, it is like a big relief that there are other less permanent sounding words to use like flexitarian or veganish or reducitarian or whatever. But I would find it impossible, beyond impossible. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I want to make clear, I'm not advocating for that. Oh, by I know any you're means. Not. I don't really understand it either, but I really feel that I don't really understand what motivates people in these spaces. And so I find it really interesting when somebody expresses something like that. I think, so maybe that's how people think about this. They don't think about, this is bad, that is good. They think about, eh, I'll, I'll try to do good when it's easy. And then, you know, the job of making it easy becomes something that can really and are really getting hold of. I think both of these conversations, like the one about you know, Andrew Yang's comment and the one about KFC are actually sort of related because totally, you know, like totally if your KFC is the only restaurant that has a vegan option anywhere near your house and you're vegan, then you're going to eat it. But if you happen to have like a vegan chicken place in your neighborhood, you'll probably go there. Understand that we're not all cut from the same cloth. What does that mean? We're not all cut from the same cloth. I've never said that before. Like, <laughs> well, I think that's what it means. It means like we're different. So by the way, before we get to the interview, just a small little aside, you mentioned Eric Yang and I was- Andrew Yang. Sorry, Andrew Yang. Well, okay. I just married Andrew Yang with Eric Adams because I was about to say something about Eric Adams. They would make such a cute couple. <laughs> they would make a very cute couple. <laughs> so on SNL the other day, Eric Adams, former Our Head House podcast guest, I might add, was spoofed in an SNL skit. Like, you know you've made it when. To those who aren't as keyed into New York City politics by any chance, though I imagine everybody who's listening to this knows who Eric Adams is, but he is the new mayor of New York City. Right, and he was now spoofed on SNL. So they know, you know, lots of people know now if they didn't know before, but I would imagine that they do already. Anyway, I was like watching this spoof and within this spoof, he was giving this speech and it was very funny, you know, like just kind of him sort of talking about how, how good he feels and how healthy he is and how he's vegan and this and that. And it was just this little moment of like, this is so rad. Like it wasn't, the yeah. joke wasn't even on him. And I know last week we talked about vegan mentions everywhere. So certainly this could like become 
our entire conversation at the top of the show. What vegan mentions have you heard this past week? But I liked that one and I wanted to. Yeah, no, it's almost like they were making fun of him for bragging. Right. And one of the things he was bragging about was being vegan. And it wasn't like they thought that was a stupid thing to brag about. They just thought it was funny that he brags. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, I think we should get to the interview now. What do you say? Well, after you have gone on and on about how fabulous it is, I imagine people are just waiting for us to shut up. So, yeah. So, PJ Nyman got started in animal advocacy as a campaign and volunteer manager at a farmed animal sanctuary in Northern California, coming from an academic background studying and teaching social and political theory at York University. PJ has contributed essays in Queer and Trans Voices, Achieving Animal Liberations Through Consistent Anti-Oppression, and in Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. They will be joining Jasmine right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, PJ. Hello, Jasmine. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Also very happy to talk to you. I was just mentioning to you that both Jen and I, Jen from our hen house, and I have both been like very intrigued by the work you do, but also just in general about like the the way you communicate, the space you take up, the way you have moved the message of veganism, animal rights, and so many other issues. So, so much to talk about. But again, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. So to start off, can you tell us about the kind of work you do for Mercy for Animals? So I am at the moment Mercy for Animals only programmatic staff in Canada, and I work in the corporate engagement space. So specifically, I'm in corporate relations. So I work with food companies on improving animal welfare policies and also starting to talk to them more about plant-based work. So our work is mainly focused on corporate engagement in Canada at the moment, which means we're working with food companies and we're trying to get animal welfare on the map in their corporate responsibility initiatives. So we see more and more food companies caring about transparency, wanting to be responsible to the public. And so we're making sure that animal welfare is incorporated into that. Well, I have I have some follow-up questions, but just for the sake of giving our listeners a thousand foot high view of who you are. Let me just keep going there and then we'll, we'll dive in a little more deeply. You are also very active with Encompass. Can you tell us about your role there? So I am the board secretary for Encompass. I've been on the board of Encompass uh, for the past three years. And so was one of the early board members who is active in helping to create some of the structure of the organization and oversee the governance. So Encompass, as I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, we are a capacity building organization in animal protection, specifically working to advance racial equity. 
So we work with organizations and we work with advocates of the global majority to offer support and help to advance racial equity in the movement. So my role has been member of the board and then also helping with anything else that's needed. So participating in racial equity institutes um, and doing some writing as well. Which we're definitely going to talk about. I And I, I serve on the board of the Newark LGBTQ Center. And I know that sometimes when you're on a board for a small organization, it is a lot more work than it probably seems because it's such a small team that everyone is like very important. So I, I also just want to sort of take a moment to acknowledge the work you've done with Encompass and with Mercy for Animals because it's all such pivotal work, especially with Encompass, like helping to build an organization from the ground up and being involved since the beginning. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Encompass and have really enjoyed being on the advisory board and being the editor of the anthology. So hats off to you. (laughs) Thank you. At the time you became interested in animal advocacy, I understand you were well on your way to a career in academia. Can you tell us why you made this turnaround? Yes, happy to talk about that. So I I came to animal advocacy from pursuing a career to become a professor. And so I studied philosophy and sociology. At the time, being vegetarian was just kind of the cool thing to do. Um, it seemed like every progressive person I knew was vegetarian. And it was really common in my graduate programs to see like the social theory we were working on as needing to be practiced. It was like, already a program that was geared toward putting theories of liberation into practice, thinking of our the way we live as part of our activism. And so in that space, I was already kind of thinking in a way that prepared me to go into a social movement in a more professional way. But it wasn't until I actually read The World Peace Diet by Will Tuttle in 2012 And that book just helped like situate veganism for me within the academic tradition I was coming from. And I suddenly started to see like animal agriculture as part of colonialism. I started to understand the overlap between like the history of humans dominating nature and then eating animals. And so I think that sort of like made veganism more radical for me. It made me see it as part of a justice movement. And then I started to see like my work as directly connecting with that. Whereas previously my vegetarianism was kind of like a personal, oh, I can't really justify eating animals. I'm not going to do it. But it wasn't integrated with like my overall worldview and sense of activism. So I think that that was like sort of the theoretical background of how I got there. And then I quickly after going vegan, just felt like compelled to do something. And so I connected early on with vegan outreach to start leafleting. That was seemed like I, I was seeing like photos all over Facebook at the time of like happy people leafleting um, and was like, oh, I should join these these people and do something. And so started leafleting. I liked it. There, there's a lot of detail here. Then I eventually interned um, at Animal Place in California. And basically I was like, how do I get involved? Which organizations are there? Where do I fit in? And through interning, discovered pretty quickly that nonprofit work really suited me. I liked being able to put a lot of the skills I learned in academia into practice, work in a community of like-minded people, and feel like there was, like my voice really mattered in this space. And so that's kind of how I got there. And then seeing that 
I was able to have an impact in the space really kept me going. Wow. There are so many elements of the story you just told that I have heard before from others, like the World Peace Diet, for example. For some reason, that book lands on a lot of people's desk at, at some very pivotal point in their life. Other books too spring to mind. Animal Liberation, I think, still is impacting people, despite the fact that a lot has changed since then. And it is, you know, a lot of these books we can see now the, the way that they are flawed, but they seem to really put people on on this path and also interning. And I'm curious if you think that people who are going vegan now and who are wanting to devote their lives to changing the world for animals, are they on that same trajectory? Is it still the world peace diet? Is it still find me a sanctuary where I can intern or is it, is it broadening? I think it's definitely broadening. I think that I entered the movement at almost like the end point of those being the main entry points. I think that those things in particular for me belong to an era where white veganism was more central. I know that the writers and thinkers who I was oriented toward early on were all white men. And I didn't really question it at the time. I just, it was kind of like, I transferred that same approach that was in my grad program right into how I approached reading animal rights thinkers. And so I think that that's one thing that's certainly changed. I think that books that are recommended to new vegans are, have more, you know, diversity in authorship and are bringing also, I guess, more varied perspective in why we do animal advocacy and overlaps with other social justice issues. And then I also think in terms of internships, we had in our movement at that time, predominantly unpaid internships. And that is, you know, geared toward people who are coming from situations of certain level of class privilege to be able to do that. And so I think that I'm seeing increasingly organizations paying interns acknowledging, you know, accessibility issues with entry points into the movement professionally. And so I'm, I'm seeing a shift in that. I'm, I'm less involved now in bringing in new people into the movement in the roles I'm in. But I just from what I've seen, I do think it's broadening. Absolutely. I just sort of had that little awareness moment as you were describing your story, which feels similar to, you know, similar enough to my story and similar enough to people's stories who sort of became involved in animal rights like 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Interesting food for thought there. One of the many reasons I wanted to interview you was because of your essay for the Encompass book entitled White Veganism Doesn't Serve Me Either, A White Vegan's Perspective. So as you pointed out there, once you became active with the mainstream animal rights movement, or as Michelle Rojas Sotas would call it the institutional animal rights movement. I like that word. There were some tendencies that you found disappointing. Can you talk a little bit about that? And we will link to your essay in the show notes for anyone listening to this who wants to read it. So, I mean, one thing that I'll speak about initially talking about white veganism is that for me, I did come into this movement through some of the messaging from white advocates that did, that spoke to me. I did feel empowered in this space. I, you know, found a voice for my activism. I felt found a cause area that I was able to, you know, have an impact working within. 
And so there was this sort of value to, to me in hearing the go vegan message as it was communicated to me at the time. But what I learned pretty early on is that that message is not accessible to everybody. It's not culturally neutral. It's not, you know, just simply saying like, go vegan as an individual. It is the ethical choice is not attainable for everybody, nor does it speak to everybody. And so I think that something that I noticed early on is that we need to expand the ways that we do advocacy, that that messaging was actually very like white middle class and that those are the people who it was going to reach. And so that was kind of perpetuating a more like monolithic mainstream vegan movement. And I think that by having this one message, I think at the time our movement was very focused on like, what is the most effective thing? Like what is like the single most effective action as though we could account for this like across the board or across all populations. And then when we came up with this idea, oh, we need to tell people to go vegan, we didn't really think about the audience or who are we talking to? What did like thinking of the format of this go vegan message as just an individual act. Like it's this ethical free choice that will put you at odds with your community. Like that's not going to speak to everybody. And that's also not necessarily going to build a movement because that's a bunch of individuals making like personal choices. And so I started to see like this whole approach and format as being rooted in a, a sort of like white Western capitalist individualism and not necessarily speaking to the kind of community work that we need and more, I guess, like a broad, broader messaging as a movement so that we're speaking to people more in many different ways so that we're not only targeting other, other white people to go vegan in the same way that we did. Well, it's a beautiful essay and I've read it like 20 times, <laughs> but <laughs> I hope you. people read it as well. And you were part of our audio series as well when we published the audio essays. Uh, so if someone wants to hear PJ, definitely check out the audio essays that accompanied the written essay. That was a mouthful. Okay, of course, going back to what we were just chatting about, Black veganism has become a, a very important force during this same time period. And at least in the U.S., a much higher percentage of Black people identify as vegan than white people. Does that inspire you? It does. Absolutely. I think that knowing that we can change the face of the movement and also have different messaging and platforms and leaders is it, it does inspire me. It makes me think that the movement is winning and also is, is bringing, I mean, it's bringing more innovation. I think that we're more effective, the more diverse we are. And we, yeah, by training new, new leaders, sharing new ideas, and also just getting away from this idea that veganism is a white people thing because we know that statistically like people of color are more likely to go vegan than white Americans. And yet a lot of white led organizations are still using, you know, methods of advocacy that are appealing more to white communities. So I think that being able to have more racial diversity and, and a variety of people speaking on behalf of animals is ultimately beneficial to our cause. 
So another thing that inspires me about the rise of Black veganism and Black vegan voices in animal advocacy is that by having animal advocates who are experienced marginalization and oppression, that adds depth to the ways that we approach animal advocacy. So I can say that, you know, personally, as somebody who's queer and trans, that informs my advocacy. That makes me, when I, when I talk about animal exploitation, I'm talking about oppression. I'm talking about, you know, a system of domination. And that approach, I think, makes our movement more powerful. It creates bridges across other movements and also helps us to address animal exploitation in a more multifaceted way. Um, I think that it was Af and Silco who talk about the importance of addressing animal oppression, not only animal consumption. And so I think by having marginalized people as animal advocates, we're positioned better to address that oppression and the overlaps of different oppressive systems. Mm. Yeah, so well said. Thank you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. It's interesting. I was thinking just now about how a few minutes ago, we were talking about some of the books that helped invite people into the world of changing the world for animals. We mentioned the World Peace Diet. I mentioned animal liberation. But the vegan landscape is changing. The animal advocacy landscape is changing. Not to put you on the spot, but do you have any books that you would love if new animal advocates were sort of handed as as they entered into the beautiful and complex world of animal advocacy? Like what, what books exist now? I mean, I would plug the book that you edited that encompassed, <laughs> um, you know, has put together the essays on anti-racism and animal advocacy. I think that's a really important collection. Um, I also would recommend AFCO's book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft though that's another book and also their previous book that really helped me connect uh, racism and animal oppression in, in ways I hadn't considered before. So I tend to be drawn toward like theory, theory books and those, you know, authors who are bringing like cultural theory or philosophy to, to their writing. So I think those, those are the two I'm going to plug for now. I love those two books. I think that there's a lot of important discussions to be had. And of course, I, I will also plug the fact that I interviewed Af when that book came out. So I do recommend people listen to that. That was an epic interview. She is incredible, needless to say. But it's funny because we keep talking about, quote unquote, the movement, as if everyone knows who we mean or what we mean. And I, I catch myself all the time, you know, referring to the movement. And when you said before, like you, you made some reference that to like inviting people in. And I just imagined we follow PJ down this road and then we go into this like secret door in the sky and there's like rainbows and pigs and we're all like, <laughs> like eating air fried tofu together. But the, there's not a club card. There's not, there's not like a, a movement that you join. You don't get like a key to something. So let's talk about that. Like, are there different levels to the movement to change the world for animals? And if so, how would you describe these levels? I, I think you're you're right, and I catch myself doing this too. I'm just like the movement, the movement, like it's like this monolith or like this this entity. 
which is really not. We're, we're, I um, mean, we're, we're, we're vegans. I, I think about a bowel movement. Let's be real. <laughs> we're vegans. Um, we care about animal exploitation and we are addressing that in a variety of ways. So I think that one, one way I think we can get at the, I guess, like multifaceted nature of this movement is that we're talking about an inequitable and cruel food system. So I think just kind of zooming out from animal exploitation, which is a terrible atrocity, but it's situated within an inequitable food system. And there are many people doing work on our food system from, you know, like practices on farms, labor, workers' rights, food access, health. Like there's all of these different elements to our food system that people are working to improve. And so to me, that's a way of kind of zooming out from the animal rights movement and helping to situate us in like a broader context of addressing inequity in our food system. And I think that the more that we zoom out like that, the more we're able to address multiple oppressions or forms of exploitation at the same time. So like just an example of that that comes up in my work because I'm working on animal welfare specifically in a corporate context is that we know that changing, you know, chicken slaughter methods to the method that's considered now, according to animal welfare science, like the more painless method is also better for workers. So when we advocate for a form of animal welfare reform like that, we're also addressing an issue that affects workers and are able to, you know, bridge that gap between two issues that otherwise might not talk to each other. So that's just an example to show that the work that we're doing has when we zoom out of the animal exploitation focus, we're able to see like these other populations that are affected by the same system. So you just mentioned something I actually never thought about, uh, which is the way that animal welfare standards being improved, for lack of a better word, can impact the workers. And I haven't really thought of it in that context before. I think to be totally honest, I think that I get too hung up on, you know, rights versus welfare. That like super old school argument that we were having in like 2004, I think. We were all having it in 2004. It was like the big hot issue. And the argument hasn't really shifted that much, but there's just been a lot more nuances added. And so that hasn't become the main focus. And again, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am curious about your take on this because you you strike me as a radical activist. You strike me as someone with very intact ethics and you're so strategic. Next level. <laughs> right, totally. Well, you do strike me as next level. So like, I would like to just talk about this for a minute. You're, you're working on welfare reforms, not liberation. How, how does that work for you? Well, I mean, I'm glad you asked because this is something I've grappled with a lot since I first started reading about animal rights. And I can say that, you know, philosophically, I am an animal rights believer. You know, I started with that kind of theory. And then earlier on when I went vegan, I didn't think I would be somebody who would work on animal welfare, you know, for the reasons that I think many of us are familiar with of thinking that, you know, we're, we want animal liberation. But what I came to see over time through understanding more the impact of institutional change is that when we advocate for animal welfare on a large scale, so say, for example, a lot of organizations now are working on 
um, setting new minimum standards for chickens raised for meat. And what that does in effect is make production more expensive. It encourages farms to be smaller and it makes companies often want to trade off some of those costs by improving plant-based options. Like, so if they, if companies have like a sustainability goal and now they're going to have to, I don't know, use, use more land to give chickens more space, they can try to meet that sustainability goal instead by adding plant-based options. So we have, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying it. But what we do is I know like in my work, we take a multifaceted approach where we're trying to make farming less efficient and more expensive and replace more of that animal farming with plant-based farming. And so I think that being able to do that is leading to the same end goal of liberation. It's just a less direct way of doing that. And so that's something I've come to see through talking to companies and also realizing how reluctant they are to even look at animal issues at all. And so the advocacy involved in actually talking to companies to government about animal welfare is elevating the issue across our society. And so I see like through my work with Mercy for Animals, when when I talk to food companies in Canada, I'm getting people to talk about the welfare of chickens who have never even thought about this issue before. And so I see that as like very valuable in terms of pushing concern for animals and centering concern for animals in corporate responsibility, in sustainability, as a social justice issue. And so I see it as as part of that. And that's how I kind of grapple with, you know, being concerned about animal liberation, but in my day-to-day doing a lot of work toward animal welfare. I think that it's important to note that our hen house was started because we don't believe there is one right way to advocate for animals. We think that we do need a multiplicity of approaches. And for those people who are listening to this, and are, you know, feeling somehow that this is personal. I just want to acknowledge that we can each choose our own paths and we don't know the right way. And ultimately we, you know, the point is to be doing something. And I think it's important to remember that sometimes there is a difference between strategy and being, you know, an ideal existence. I I think that sometimes we have to choose the strategy, for example, and I'm speaking in generalities here, you might be able to help me pinpoint this. But when I lived in California a couple of years ago, and there was a, a ballot initiative on the ballot that was calling for raising the price of eggs, I voted in favor of that because I know that ultimately that's going to be something that will impact the rise of plant based advocacy, the rise of plant-based consumption. It's very similar to the Humane League that does a lot of egg campaigns, like creating better systems for hens. I know that ultimately that isn't what I want, but it does wind up driving the prices of eggs just at the same time as egg alternatives like Just Eggs (laughs) are uh, lowering their prices. So, you know, you wind up with a more plant-based society. So I think it is valuable to think about all of the various campaigns. I'm not sure I'm being terribly articulate. <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. I, I know what you mean too. And I, I think that like something I'm learning to do more as I like continue in my career is to take risks. And it's difficult. Like I don't always know if what I'm doing is the absolute best thing I could be doing with my time. Like I, tr- I think in that way, I think it's important 
for all of us to assess our actions from a strategic perspective. But at the same time, we can't know if this is the absolute best way. We can just try new things. And I know that like when I'm working with food companies and seeing integration of concern for animals, like I'm feeling like that's a win. It's feeling right to me. And I'm generally trying to use that, like that intuition (laughs) to my benefit here to hopefully like make the right choices about what kind of work I should be doing. And we can then learn from what we're doing. You know, I, I unfortunately have memorialized some of my early thoughts, both in writing and in like documentaries. I, I was for some reason in when I was like vegan for 10 minutes, you know, and I, I, I hear myself giving advice or saying something. I'm like, what, what? No, no, no. Take it out. Take it down. But like, it's there. And as creative people, as passionate people, and as activists, we, we kind of have to allow ourselves the opportunity to shift and to bring humility to that process. So I appreciate all that you're doing and the ways that you're doing it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, I may listen back on this years down the road and disagree with myself. I know that I, I feel the same way when I look back at things I've, I've thought in the past. So you mentioned inequities within the way that workers are treated. And I think this is something that people who listen to our henhouse are are very passionate about, as well as animal rights issues specifically. So how, how here's a big question. <laughs> how can we achieve equity for the people who are working in these systems? You know, that I, I just don't, I don't always know the best way forward. Do we focus on the human rights components, the animal rights components? Do we just let different groups focus on different aspects of this? Like, how can we be focused on liberation as a whole while we're going about our animal advocacy? That's a really good question. And I think that when we were actually in in one of Encompass's racial institutes together, we ended up in a small group talking about this difference between not contributing to racial inequity in our work versus actively working on improving racial equity. And I think that this is a question I think a lot of organizations are asking themselves right now is, and animal advocates is like, is the goal here to kind of do like racial impact analyses and make sure that in all of our programs, we're not negatively harming marginalized groups? Like, is is that the goal? Or is the goal to actively try to fight for workers in the food system? And I think that's where we get this concern of like mission drift, understandably. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure how to do this. I don't have an answer. I just have a lot of questions. And I think this is like a moment for animal protection folks and organizations to, to, to look at this and say like, are we trying to diversify our missions? Are we trying to like add on, like you said, like a human rights aspect to our advocacy or an environmental aspect? Or are we just kind of trying to make sure we're not perpetuating harms in our advocacy? I'm not really sure. Like, I think my approach is that as a starting point, we want to do like the first thing, which is like not contribute to racial inequity or to other forms of oppression in the ways that we do our advocacy. But then I think the next step is to look for opportunities where 
advocating for animal rights or animal welfare will also help another marginalized group. So in the example of something like workers' rights, I think there are certain initiatives and welfare reforms that also benefit workers. So I think if we can look for more opportunities like that, that could, you know, strengthen our advocacy and also like build more connections with other cause areas. Speaking of achieving equity for people, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, how can we achieve equity for people who are working in the farmed animal protection movement? What are some tangible ways forward? Well, I think that a starting point is to do an equity assessment or diversity, equity, inclusion assessment of organizations. So if we're talking about organizational change, then organizations need to see see where they're at is do some kind of analysis of, you know, how diverse is their staff? Do they have an inclusive work culture? Are they addressing equity in terms of how they recruit, how they pay, career development opportunities? So that's sort of the organizational side. And then in terms of advocates, and right now I'm also speaking to a lot of what Encompass has been doing um, and our role in the animal protection movement, the work for advocates is to make sure that advocates of the global majority are able to connect with one another and have the support that they need to be able to thrive as advocates. And so I think that those are some of the ways. And I think that having like connecting with other people and other organizations who are doing this work is important to create accountability. I think there's a lot of, this is like difficult work to do and it's difficult work to sustain. So I would actually love to talk a little bit about some work that Encompass is going to be doing next year, a a kind of shift in the work that we're doing that I think will help to bring more people into the space of working on racial equity. Yeah, I would love to talk about that because as you were talking And I've talked a little bit with Ariana Shperdy about this, the executive director of Encompass. But as you were talking, I was thinking, oh my gosh, Encompass started. There was this like giant racial uprising in our country. And and everyone who was sort of doing their best or wanting to do better flocked to Encompass and was basically like, oh, thank God you're here. Help us fix it. But like at the end of the day, it can't all rest on Encompass. <laughs> so I would love to know what what Encompass is going to be focusing on. So I mean, I could just start by saying like when Encompass first started, they did like an assessment of demographics in among farmed animal protection groups and found that people of color made up about 10% of the you know professional animal protection movement in contrast with 38% of the U.S. population at the time. So it was like recognized early on, like there is a discrepancy in representation, which obviously harms people of color who work in organizations and it harms our cause because we know that we're not as effective or efficient when we're not representative of the population that we're, you know, doing advocacy within. So we could recognize that that is an issue. And so knowing that problem, we want to work obviously with organizations and with advocates on advancing racial equity so that we're more effective. And so what Encompass has been doing for the past few years for organizations is consulting work. So like in-depth consulting work and collaboration with organizations to create like long-term systemic culture change. 
And what we're shifting to next year is a membership program. So basically, instead of offering consulting to individual organizations, Encompass is creating a community of practice for racial equity within animal protection. So basically a space where member organizations can come to access resources, workshops, and events that support organizations in implementing structural and long-term changes. And so basically organizations will, there's sort of four components of this that we've laid out so far, and then there'll be more details to come early next year. So one component of membership is going to be committing to a set of practices. So sort of very parallel to the way that I try to get commitments from corporations to certain animal welfare standards, what we're looking for is commitments from animal protection organizations to meeting certain racial equity components that they will commit to over the next several years to create meaningful change. So basically like benchmarks. You can th- we we see this companies and institutions use things like the global diversity and inclusion benchmark. So Encompass is creating a sort of benchmark or like set of commitments for organizations specifically in animal protection. Another component of the membership program is resource guides. So basically resources for member organizations that will support each other so that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So a lot of organizations are looking for the same kinds of practical steps. So for example, like the role of boards in advancing racial equity, there could be resources on that or um, how to develop program metrics that ensure that there's progress made on racial equity year to year. So resource sharing. And then we'll offer office hours. So member organizations can, you know, meet with Encompass one-on-one and then also community building. So make sure that there's a space for members to come and connect with each other, learn from each other, build collective knowledge, share challenges, celebrate wins together, and then also, you know, create accountability by having groups who are doing this work do it um, side by side. So I think this is like, I'm really excited about this. I think this is like exactly the kind of, you know, move that we need. Um, It will improve accountability and help to create connections between organizations that are invested in this work and put us together (laughs) so we can work on this collectively. Because, you know, as you said, there's like, you know, racial uprising in the US. There's, there was, you know, Me Too in the AR movement that sort of launched the equity conversation in 2017, 18. And so this is like a time I think that so many organizations and advocates are ready to do this work and need this like guidance and, you know, shared responsibility. Oh, that's all so exciting. I love the shift to the membership model. And Though I want people to support Encompass's work, and if they become members, I want them to financially support Encompass's work. I also want to say, if you want to come back or anyone else from Encompass to discuss maybe those four modules in detail, that would be a really cool conversation that we'd love to have. But I don't want to do it instead of people joining because obviously like they would be accessing all of this for, for free. And I want people to also, you know, Encompass is an organization I, that I also hold very near and dear to my heart. And I strongly believe in, the, in supporting the mission financially as well. So uh, for those who are able to, but that's very cool. Thank you for, for that little glimpse. And you were saying next year, but I want to just be clear, we're airing this at the beginning of 2022. So it's technically this year. So happy new year. <laughs> yes, this year. And perhaps you can already <laughs> find more information about this online. Yeah, totally. 
So going back just briefly to strategy, why would you say single issue approaches to animal oppression are absolutely not the right way to proceed? I think that, I guess many reasons come to mind. One is that they're limiting in that the focus is so much on animal consumption and individual change. So I think that single issue veganism, single issue animal advocacy is like putting the animal issue above all else and 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 having like a strategy that is focused a lot on individual change. There is also a focus on institutional change, but the institutional change advocated for is typically animal welfare reform, which while important is not the only thing we need to address. It doesn't necessarily look at you know, the food system and other inequities within. And so I think that treating animal advocacy at, on its own as an issue kind of limits our ability to address um, multiple oppressions at the same time. And I can say too that when we take a single issue approach, we it also creates sort of a like inherent defensiveness, um, which can prevent us from seeing how we could do better. So this, for me, this question sort of connects back to something I talk about in my essay, which is kind of the limitation of being allies for animals that, you know, when we're allies for animals, we don't have, they're not holding us accountable for how good we are at being advocates for them. They're not um, telling us like, Hey, you know, that imagery you used was sexist or, you know, like animals are not calling us out on that. And so we're, we need other people to, to do that for us. But I think that when we're advocating for veganism in a single issue way, we're more likely to, I guess, like be opposed to those kinds of critiques because we're like, no, we have to focus on the animals. We're the animal advocates. We're not, we don't need to talk about race. We don't need to talk about gender. We don't, you know, we don't need to talk about ability. Like we, we sort of just push those issues away, even though, addressing them makes us more effective and, and more authentic because many of us are, you know, belong to marginalized groups ourselves. So that's another way I see it as, as being limiting is just kind of pushing away other perspectives and valid critiques of the ways that we're going about doing advocacy. I should have asked you first for any listeners who are new to this world, which I know that I, I take that for granted often. Like, I think, oh, everyone knows already about all of these issues. But how would you define single-issue activism? Yeah, I think that single-issue veganism or single-issue animal advocacy is when we focus on getting people to stop consuming animals as, like, our primary focus or improving animal welfare on its own, like, as a, as a single goal. So it's like, it, the goal is to get people to stop eating animals. And if that's the bottom line, then we can disregard any other kind of oppression in the process. And we can go about that advocacy in a way where, you know, if our only goal is to like make new vegans, <laughs> for example, then we might do things like just go talk to the people who are already positioned most easily to go vegan, which might leave out like most of the population, for example. I guess that's kind of a broad way of saying it. I, I think it's it's challenging to define in in a quick way, and then but I understand that like it's we want to make sure we're being clear here. I guess so. I guess I guess I define it through examples 
So I think like a single issue vegan approach is like the sort of classic, like go vegan message. That's like, go vegan. It's easy. Here's a leaflet with like how to veganize your burgers and pasta recipes. (laughs) It's not only like only animal focused, but it's also not culturally neutral. It's like very white American to advocate in that way. I would also say that this is an interesting metaphor for how we look at our own activism as a whole. So aside from like the activism we do with a particular group or campaign, if we each look at ourselves as like a pie chart and we think, okay, I spend my Saturdays leafleting on that university campus. I spend my Monday through Friday writing about this particular issue. I am a volunteer board member for this anti-racist group, yada, yada. Like we also all have our own pie charts to fill. And I mean, for me, that's actually been very helpful in terms of how I look at all of the different things I do, you know, like veg news being a very, you know, mainstream friendly way of talking about veganism, whereas our hen house is something that is helping people to become stronger animal activists. And then kinder beauty is really reaching the you know people who want to make the easiest possible switch, which is to go, in my opinion, to go into cruelty-free beauty products. And then I do LGBTQ activism as well as a volunteer and anti-racism activism as a volunteer, but that's my pie chart. Like, so it's not just about the way we're looking at the animal activism, which can become its own little pie chart, but it's also about how we're approaching our day-to-day. I'm sort of spitballing here. Does that make sense? No, that that totally makes sense. And I also think that like that brings up for me thinking of like our individual pie charts of areas that we work in, that part of how single issue veganism, I think, became like this strategy in the animal protection movement was when there was really a lack of diversity in leadership. And so when we had people leading most of the major organizations and best funded organizations and programs, I'm just speaking like in the US um, and Canada in particular here, when we have those voices at the top, they're people who often haven't experienced a lot of marginalization and may not be active in other spaces. So it was in some sense, like they're not necessarily positioned to bring their own experiences to their animal advocacy because they may they may have fewer. I mean, I'm generalizing here like quite a bit, but just speaking to, you know, the importance of having people as animal advocates who are bringing their own identities and experience personal experiences of oppression to their work. That is such a good point. I love that. So you have said, and I'm quoting you, you have said, in practical terms, the decision not to use animals and animal-derived products And encouraging others to do the same in itself does very little in challenging us to face our own role in systems that oppress other humans. So how do we promote veganism in a way that does challenge us in that way? Well, I think starting off with just realizing that like veganism as a practice of, you know, abstaining from animal use is is so important, but it doesn't in itself address other inequities. I think that like that was a huge revelation for me personally, just to even get to that point. I had started off earlier on as a vegan thinking that like, oh, if I extend my compassion all the way to animals, it means I'm like, 
you know, immune to every other social injustice. I can't possibly be participating in this or perpetuating it. And then I realized at some point that that's really not true at all and that we need to be, you know, actively addressing other inequities um, in addition to, you know, the ways that animals are treated. So I think just like starting there is very important recognizing that our practice of veganism is one way that we embody our ethics. And if we are concerned about oppressions across the board, concerned about racism and sexism, we need to be active in those spaces as well and also bring that concern to our animal advocacy. So I know that that's sort of a general answer, but I think of, you know, my own work when I'm doing animal advocacy, I'm like bringing my queerness to that. I'm bringing my, the fact that I care about, you know, protecting bodily autonomy and our right to choose how we live or to choose our own partners. Like, I feel like that comes into the way I advocate for animals in in one way or another. So I think that bringing in that perspective is important and just recognizing that like our veganism, while very important and essential is really about abstaining from animal products just in terms of practice and that we need to apply that same sense of what it means to practice our values in the other areas of our lives so that we're actively, you know, anti-racist, anti-sexist, so forth. So well said. And I know I uh, my last question was sort of asking you the same question in a different way, but I, I feel like you just really, really provided a full circle view of how we can approach our own advocacy in a way that is truly aligned with the world we want to see. So I really appreciate that. You've mentioned a couple of times being LGBTQ. What was it like coming out while being an animal advocate? Yeah, it was really interesting because I really came out as queer very shortly after going vegan. So I felt like there was something about practicing veganism, which was this, like, I need to put my values into action that made it kind of impossible for me to ignore my queerness any longer. I was about, I guess, 26 at the time and had just realized that it was something about the actual, like, putting my values into practice with veganism just, like, prompted a bunch of other shifts, including coming out. And so initially, you know, I, I remember watching your coming out for animals video back when it came out. And I was like, I remember feeling like very honored to be part of this group of queer vegans. And I was like, these are like incredible change makers. I get to join this group. I was excited about it. But I also found at times when I was like getting into the professional space of animal protection that there wasn't always a lot of awareness of gender justice or trans rights or how to create inclusive workplaces for trans staff and volunteers. And so I think I had two feelings about it. Like on the one hand, I was like so empowered in this space. I was like, there are queer vegans. This is a thing. We have a lot of shared experiences in terms of coming out as queer, coming out as vegan. Um, and, but at the same time, recognizing that like, we still had a lot of work to do in animal advocacy to integrate this and to also make sure that our, I guess, like movement culture was inclusive. And I know that a lot of nonprofits and animal nonprofits have high turnover. And we know that marginalized people tend to be more negatively impacted by, um, poor workplace cultures and are disproportionately affected. So, 
it was like, I came out as queer. I was like, oh, I have belonging in this movement. And yet we, our movement is, you know, needs to be more inclusive because we're actually like alienating a lot of people in this space who are not always feeling included, but, you know, for reasons of gender or, or sexuality or otherwise. So that's that piece of it. And then I also later came out as trans. So that's, that's, I came out as trans a couple of years ago, also kind of continuing on with this being truthful with myself and trying to live according to my values and live authentically. So I think that to me, like these journeys of putting my values into action are intertwined. And I don't know that it's hard for me to imagine having come out had I not gone vegan. It was like just all part of one process of really wanting to live authentically. Authenticity is really the name of the game here. I mean, it, it, it's true that there's so many people I, I have spoken with who, when they start to lift the veil of cruelty to animals and they start to really, truly recognize the way they have been perpetuating that, that we've been perpetuating that, we start to look at all of the other ways that we have assimilated to a society that had an idea of who we should be and how we should be. And it is a very brave path. It's a very wrought path sometimes. And I love that video too, the coming out for animals. I appreciate that you brought it up. Uh, We shot it like, I feel like it might've been around 2012 or 2013. I can't remember specifically, but it wasn't easy to find the LGBTQ folks to feature in that. It wasn't actually, I was living in New York City at the time and it was it was a bit challenging to find people who have this sort of shared passion and this shared identity. And so even though that video is probably my most favorite little video that we've ever made, that I've ever been involved with, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I have all these queer vegans around me. Let's all come together and discuss... It's something I'm passionate about. I kind of came into the animal protection movement writing about these overlaps of these issues. My first article ever published was in Satya magazine. It was called Coming Out for Animals, and it was exploring these overlaps. And then at the time, I I met up with now Milo Runkle, and, and he was doing a lot of work in that space. But he was a unicorn. There were a lot of groups and a lo- or a lot of people who were drawing these sort of overlaps and talking about them. So I do think that there's still a lot more space for us to explore as animal protection advocates, especially those who identify in the LGBTQ space in whatever way. And I think personal narrative is the key to that. I agree. And I think it's something that I've been thinking of a lot of like how to integrate these narratives in the way that I talk about why I care about queer rights and why I care about animal rights and being able to draw those connections. And I think too, like early on, it's interesting you say how it's difficult to find the the people to feature in that video, because I think when that video came out around when I was entering animal protection professionally. And so I had this sense of like, oh, there's so many queer vegans out there. Like this is like a, you know, a huge <laughs> group. They're making videos. <laughs> I, and so, and I think that was like kind of similar to some of like the false sense I had of the vegan movement from like having started by like reading the world peace diet and seeing veganism as like this radical political act. And that that wasn't always the the case, like in the mainstream representations of veganism and the movement. And so I think, yeah, I just thinking of your, of the coming up for animals video, like I think I had a kind of a false sense of how 
large this group was. And so I agree with you that there's still, you know, more work to be done on drawing those connections. And also just like queer people in the movement, like owning that queerness as part of their story and part of why they're, you know, they're passionate about, you know, justice issues in general. Totally, totally. Sorry for painting a false picture with the video. <laughs> oh, that's uh, been but... the open space for me. It was, it was yeah, good. yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Some might actually say that in these deeply divided times, animal issues are one of the few issues that draw people from different ends of the political spectrum. It is one of those issues that runs the gamut from the right to the left. Is there any way to create common ground without betraying principles of equity? I think that I've struggled with this fact that animal issues do draw in people from across the political spectrum because I, I myself came to veganism with an interest in creating social change from like very much like from the political left. So I know I find this like personally challenging to think about how to, I don't know, like create unity or to advance, I guess, multiple causes through animal advocacy. I think like one thing I can say is I, I do really, I appreciate seeing how many traditionally animal focused organizations are speaking up about other issues because I think that they have a role as thought leaders in bringing along other animal advocates to understanding why other forms of oppression exist and how advocating for animals can help, you know, advance justice in other areas too. So I think there's sort of work to be done in creating some kind of unity in, or I don't know if, uni if unity is needed, maybe I'm like, that's I'm just going to that immediately thinking like we have to be this one big strong movement. But I, yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know how to bring us all together or how to, I guess, like reach folks who care about animals who are not as involved or interested in combating other forms of oppression. Like I think animal advocates who speak up about multiple issues are effective. I think that creates more leadership and more of a sense that animal advocacy is not monolithic or single issue? Yeah, I don't know the answer either. I, that's why I asked you. I was like, tell, <laughs> tell me, Peter. But I do think that, and I say this as an atheist, but I do think we have to, to some extent, have faith, I guess. I do think to some extent that if we are truly being authentic, if we are truly acting in alignment with our worldview and how we want to show up. So that doesn't just mean being vegan for a lot of us. It means actively fighting against animal cruelty. It, it doesn't just mean, you know, being non-racist. It means being anti-racist and actively fighting against racism. If we, if we continue to lean into our authenticity, then I do believe that attracts others. And I don't know if I'm directly addressing the left versus right conundrum, but I ultimately think we become bigger and stronger. No, I, I agree. And I think too, like the fact that anybody is caring about animals and advocating on their behalf in a society that like fundamentally abuses them on, in so many ways is pretty radical. Like you're all, we already have among animal advocates, a group who is willing to 
you know, disagree with their family or their community who's willing to stand up for something, who is interrogating themselves and their own practices and trying to, like you said, like value authenticity and, you know, living according to our values. That really sets us up to be active in other areas. And I guess it's just a question of like, what other areas do we work on? Like, are there, if we could pick like a second or third cause area to like attach on to animal rights, what would those be that would have, you know, the most support among existing vegans or people who, you know, advocate for animals? I'm not sure. Yeah, it goes back to our little personal pie charts. So how do you account for the often hostile attitude on the left toward animal activism? I think that part of the hostility that we see from the left toward animal advocacy is rooted in, I think in part, a misunderstanding of animal rights and animal advocacy in terms of single-issue veganism. So I think that the way that the vegan movement has presented itself has been very white and very middle class. And the message, this sort of go vegan individual messaging doesn't appear like this is a social justice movement. Um, when we're t- asking people like stop eating animals, that's, that's very, a very important ask, but it doesn't really show like concern about the food system more broadly. It doesn't carry with it concern for human issues at the same time. So I think that it it almost like would appear as like this like privileged group just trying to get other people within the same social class to do what they're doing. And so I think like the more that we can talk about animal oppression, the more we talk about like oppressive systems and animal exploitation being a component of an oppressive system, the more buy-in we get from the left. I hope that the border opens up soon because I really want you to come visit me. (laughs) So we could discuss this double. Oh, I would love to. <laughs> okay, please do. Uh, you said it on the air, so now you're now that's your accountability. <laughs> so I, I'm almost done with the full interview here, but I do hope you'll stay on for our bonus content. I have a few more questions for you, but before we uh, end, I have a question about Canada. Uh, a lot of people assume that the conditions for farmed animals must be better in Canada than in the U.S., but from what I know, though Canada may be more progressive on many other issues, that's not the case when it comes to farmed animals. Am I right? What is the state of animal agriculture in Canada? Well, I will say that it is a misconception often among Canadians that we don't have the kind of factory farming that we see in the U.S., which is just not true at all. We have the same you know, scale of, well, you know, lower numbers, but the same scale in terms of the level of industrialization of farming here and the same, you know, extreme confinement practices being commonplace. At Mercy for Animals has done, you know, several investigations onto Canadian farms and animal justice now is like the leading animal law advocacy organization in Canada and they're doing investigation. They've, you know, done investigations recently that have shown, um, you know, abuse in the dairy industry, for example. So all undercover footage is showing us like the same kinds of abuse. And I do think it's really important that these abuses are highlighted in a Canadian context so that Canadians can't say, oh, that footage is from the U.S. Like we need to be able to own, you know, what's, what's actually happening here. I will just say, unfortunately, Canada is has passed ag-egg laws for the first time in the last few years. We now have several provinces with ag-egg laws, and I know that that will pose 
challenges to getting that footage. Um, but certainly the situation here is is similar and in the kinds of cruelty we see in animal agriculture. Canada is ahead on certain things than the US. Like we do have some guidelines that are calling for the ban of gestation and farrowing crates for mother pigs. So we do we are seeing a shift toward that just for you know from the welfare side. We also are you know, transitioning some aspects of chicken production in ways that are, you know, considered higher welfare than some of the practices in the U.S. But that being said, we are substantially behind on eliminating battery cages. So that's an area where the U.S. has actually made significantly more progress through legislation and also through extensive corporate animal welfare commitments that companies are, for the most part, implementing. In Canada, Unfortunately, we have a system, well, unfortunately, there's different views on it. There's a system we have called supply management, which basically guarantees certain quotas of production to farmers. So farmers are less incentivized to adopt higher welfare standards because they're guaranteed business regardless of whether they upgrade their standards. So we have some unique situations here that make advancing animal welfare more challenging in, in some ways. And so I, I did, that's sort of just a general way of saying like Canada has all the problems that the U.S. has. There's certain areas where we're moving along in animal welfare and then other areas where we're falling behind. Well, my final question for you, PJ, is it's the beginning of a new year. By the time this airs, 22 happens to be my good luck number. And though this might change, this episode is scheduled to air on January 22nd, 2022. So double whammy with my good luck numbers. (laughs) So with that being said, what are you hopeful about looking forward into what we have going on this year. Uh, You can be specific with campaigns you're working on, or you can just talk in generalities with whatever, whatever is coming to mind for you. I'd love to live vicariously through your hope. (laughs) Well, I can start by saying that just to continue with my work in Canada. And then I can talk a little bit about what I'm excited about in the racial equity space with Encompass. So in Canada, I'm excited about building more relationships with food companies and making sure that they're implementing higher welfare standards. Because I know that when I I started in my role with Mercy for Animals about a year and a half ago, and I found pretty quickly engaging with food companies that there weren't a lot of people holding them accountable to what they had committed to. And so even though there's been all of this work in getting over a hundred corporate animal welfare commitments in the country, not everyone is implementing those policies. Some they've had turnover at organizations. They don't, companies sometimes don't realize they have policies anymore, or they just haven't been actively trying to progress toward implementation. And so I'm excited about holding companies publicly accountable. We, this past year, launched the first ever Canada Animal Welfare Scorecard, which was the first report to focus exclusively on food companies operating in Canada and their performance on key animal welfare issues. And so in 2022, we're launching the second edition of the report. And I'm really excited to have some relationships going with companies already so that we can push them like even further next year um, to be accountable. So excited for that. I'm also excited about this shift with Encompass to a membership model. 
I'm really excited to, you know, offer support to that and to help spread the word. I think that this kind of community of practice is exactly what's needed right now among animal protection organizations. I feel like really confident that we're going to have a lot of synergy, learn from each other, share resources. And I think this coming year is sort of a year for us to like connect and set this up so that we can go into the next several years um, much more equipped to be active and really improve racial equity in organizations and then um, support more advocates. I love all of that. What about on a personal level? Is there anything that you're hoping to do this year or like eat at that new restaurant or visit that new... What's going on for you on a personal level? Yes. So I am a member of Canada's largest LGBTQ plus choir in Toronto, singing out. (laughs) And (laughs) so I sing in, yes, this wonderful queer choir. And next year I'm joining them again in person. So I'm really excited to get to do it again. I started in 2019 and then we pretty quickly had to switch to, we did one concert in person and then we switched to a virtual model and virtual choir is fun, you know, singing on Zoom has its, I don't know, cute things about it, but I like cannot wait to just like be with people again, singing in a group. It's been like that community is just like means so much to me and it's where I met my partner. So and we, we weren't together yet the last time we performed, Aww. and now we are. So we get to like be the cute, <laughs> cute choir couple um, and sit, sing together in a group next year. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. We'll start rehearsing in January, and then I think we'll have a like a big concert in June. Oh my gosh, that is so rad. Please keep me posted. If the world seems safe enough, I would love to... I want to go see the performance. I love queer choirs. Are you joking? I can't believe this was... I'm glad you brought this up at the end or I would have made that the entire interview. We would not have talked about animal rights or or racial (laughs) equity at all. So uh, with that being said, PJ, please stay on with me to chat to our flock. But before you go, can you tell our listeners how they can find you online, how they can support your efforts? Feel free to list all of your platforms. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would mainly actually direct everyone to check out Encompass, who hasn't already, at encompassmovement.org. I personally am not on social a lot these days, but you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. It's PJ Nyman. You can also reach out to me directly by email, pjnyman at mercyforanimals.org. And thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. This has been really fun. It's really a dream to get to be on the show. I've been a longtime fan. And yeah, I appreciate uh, you having me here and appreciate everyone for listening. Thanks, PJ. It's definitely a mutual admiration society. Thank you so much for joining us today on Our Hen House. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts, and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. First story today is a doozy. It really is. It's from meetingplace.com. I think all my stories this week are from meetingplace.com. Reforming our food systems. This is from the Chef's Table blog by 
Michael Formicella, who, you know, is kind of meat industry adjacent. He's, he's a chef and he does have a food company, but it's not like he owns a slaughterhouse or something. Anyway, according to Michael, if you were thinking that the plant-based movement was only a flash in the pan, you may want to revise that thought. Yeah, I totally agree. He goes on to say, the fact is Americans are eating less animal protein and becoming more cognizant of what sustainability means in the long term. Interesting. I wonder if this is true of Michael. Well, let's read on. All right, I'm going to read this whole paragraph. Subsequently, I've seen the rise of add-on groups like reducitarians. Not sure whether it's an add-on group. Focused on a mantra of improving human health, protecting our environment while monitoring and sparing farm animals from cruelty by directly reducing the consumption of animal products. I believe in taking care of our environment and being good stewards of the animals that we raise. Michael doesn't know anything about I, I think he, he turns a blind eye. I really do. Ensuring that we have suitable protocols to provide for animal wellness and sustainability. Wellness and sustainability. He's not talking about humane. Is paramount. I, right now, I know this is, this, is this is the money line. I am still a meat eater, and I don't think that will change. This is a guy writing for meetingplace.com. He's obviously thinking that maybe... He, it, it's possible that he will change. He doesn't think he will, but he's still a me. What? <laughs> and then he goes on to say, there are some brilliant humans out there that I am hoping will come up with an ecological and economically viable plan so we can have our meat cake and eat it too. Uh, yeah, no, there aren't. And you, you apparently already know there are these huge problems. And what is going on here? And what the hell is meat cake? I guess he was just like, using, you know, a phrase. <laughs> All right. Also from Meeting Place, as I mentioned, it's 22, 2022. Now what? This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. And this is not a long comment. He goes through all these predictions for 2022 and bad things. And he doesn't talk about anything about the meat industry, uh, you know, the, the competition from, from vegans and animal rights groups regarding and, and alternatives for the meat industry, which is is interesting because I would think that would be a bad thing for them. But then he gets to the positive things. And this is how he puts it. Consumer initially, I get the means consumers, consumers initially accepting and then partially rejecting plant-based faux meat alternatives. But, and this is a big but, consumers have been attracted to the meat case by the alt meats and in growing numbers can pick up the real stuff instead. All right, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so he obviously wanted to put the uh, alt meats, as he calls them, or plant-based faux meat alternatives into the positives column. But that was hard to do. So he made up this story that they're going to like it and then they're not going to like it anymore. But in the meantime, people will come to the meat case to get alternative products. And instead, in growing numbers, They'll buy meat instead. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. <laughs> I think the actual story is that people who who are thinking about eating meat will go to the meat meat counter and or the meat case. That's what he calls it, and then will end up buying, uh, you know, Impossible or something. That's the real thing they're worried about, which he didn't say. It like <laughs> that was that was a totally weird one. All right. Now from our favorite, Hannah Thompson-Weeman, who writes the Animal Ag Watch column. 
activism by the numbers. Animal rights extremism is already in full swing for 2022, as activists are hard at work promoting Veganuary and calling for everyone to resolve to go vegan this year. That's her idea of animal rights extremism, <laughs> Veganuary. <laughs> That's a real reach, a real reach. But here's the, the cool thing. She's looking up, she ch- checked out all these numbers, and according to her, agriculture was the most protested industry in 2021. And this is internationally, but the U.S. had the most agriculture-focused protests by far. Wow. Good job, everyone. Agriculture was also the most targeted industry by direct action activity, with 103 out of 276 direct actions, which by which she includes cyber attacks. Yeah, really? Physical attacks? We don't attack. Arson? No. Vandalism? Investigative criminal trespass. Ding, 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 ding. Banner drops, oh yeah, a few of those, etc. And she points out that unfortunately she's pretty confident that agriculture status is the most targeted industry by activists will continue in 2022. I agree. I agree. And congrats, everybody. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast. And to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.